From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, it's not too late to slow climate change. That's what Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Latuna Tabwa say. They'll explain later in the hour. But first, on Tuesday, the January 6th committee held yet another dramatic and revealing hearing. We'll have analysis from John Nichols in a minute. On Tuesday, the January 6th committee held another astounding hearing, this one on the weeks leading up to January 6th and the specific events that led Donald Trump to call his supporters to come to Washington for the rally that day. For comment, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. Hi, John. Hi, John. It's good to be with you. Well, we learned that the origins of the January 6th Stop the Steal rally lay in a wild meeting the night of December 18th. This is just before Trump sent that tweet at 1.30 in the morning. Uh, The meeting that preceded that was the subject of the first half of Tuesday's uh, hearing. This was a meeting between the crazies who had somehow snuck into the cap, into the White House, Uh, without the staff knowing that Sidney Powell, General Flynn, and a couple of others who wanted Trump to order the military to seize voting machines. And the White House lawyers, led by Pat Cipollone, whose testimony we saw for the first time, uh, told Trump he couldn't do that. And it was after that, at 1.30 in the morning, that he sent the tweet summoning groups that he knew were violent to come to Washington on January 6th and promising, quote, it will be wild. This was an incredible event, this hearing. It really was. And, you know, look, I I think there's a a couple of details that that we should clarify just from your very good introduction there. And first and foremost, you said that had snuck into the White House. Well, with all due respect, nobody sneaks into the White House. (laughs) Uh, Somebody says they can come. (laughs) Thank you. what this whole conversation or what everything we've heard suggests is that Donald Trump was the person who said they could come. It's clear that these people were on a list of folks that could enter the White House. They came to this meeting and at this meeting had, you know, obviously detailed conversations with Donald Trump about plots to overturn the results of an election Donald Trump had lost. Now, Jamie Raskin, who I would argue is the key figure, along with uh, uh, Representative Murphy on this during this hearing, um, has suggested that the best way to look at this is to go back from December 18th and, and look at what had happened to Donald Trump. He had lost the election. The networks had called it against him. Uh, he had objected and tried to challenge it in the courts in the states, uh, pressuring state officials, pressuring uh, local election officials and others, everything had failed. The results had been recounted and then certified. And then just days before the Electoral College had voted to confirm that Joe Biden had been elected president. So all of his efforts to prevent his removal from office had failed. This meeting then on December 18th becomes sort of a desperate session. These lawyers suggest seizing the voting machines in battleground states. Other folks are basically saying, look, you can't do that. That's that's way beyond the realm of possibility. And so Trump then leaves this wild meeting, this craziest meeting ever held in the White House, 
He goes back to his quarters. We know that Donald Trump doesn't sleep. This is eating at him. What is he going to do? And suddenly at 1.42 a.m., you get this tweet, which says, January 6th, come to Washington. It's going to be wild. Within hours, the most extreme insurrectionist groups have seized on this as a call to come to Washington. They got the message clearly. And they literally were launching websites using Trump's own language to organize what happened on January 6th. So what they've done at this hearing is to give us Trump's state of mind, show us Trump's actions, and show the play out from those actions. That is a pretty dramatic development confirming that, as Benny Thompson has said, Donald Trump was at the center of a conspiracy to launch a coup that sought to overturn the results of the 2020 election and make Donald Trump an illegitimate president for four more years. And today's hearing was aimed at refuting the current defense of Trump by his remaining uh, defenders, which is that John Eastman and others, the crazies, convinced Trump that he could do this and so that he had an honest belief that this was a legal form of recourse. Uh, he was under the power of these other people. Today's hearing made it pretty clear with very convincing evidence that it was Trump himself who decided what was going to happen on January 6th. Yeah, it was actually summed up remarkably well by um, a former Trump aide, who uh, Pearson, who was one of the organizers of the Stop the Steal rally. This is a hardcore Trump loyalist who was, you know, in for the Stop the Steal rally. But as Kristen Pearson, you know, pointed out in, in tweets and other information, she became deeply concerned because of the, the extremists, potentially violent extremists that were attaching to this rally and all of the indications that there was something much bigger going on. And, you know, there was this discussion of the crazies, right? And then the response to her concerns is Trump likes the crazies, yeah. right? It isn't, it isn't that, that, yeah, Trump mustn't know about this. We need to alert him to it. In fact, this, this organizer of the rally actually contacted the White House, talked to Mark Meadows and said, look, you know, there's something bad going on here. And, and instead of saying, yeah, we better get that to the president immediately, we probably need to cancel the rally, et cetera, et cetera. You had none of that. So it's actually through the course of today's hearing, you got mounting evidence that Donald Trump was A, urging these people on, and B, absolutely unwilling to do anything to intervene that might prevent the violence that people saw as a real possibility. And in some ways, the most convincing witness that we saw was the videotape of White House attorney Pat Cipollone. Hasn't been seen before. He's the one who has been refusing to testify. Only in the last week uh, did he agree to uh, talk to the committee on tape, and they showed the highlights of that. And let's emphasize, Pat Cipollone is not some you know, liberal law professor. This is a Trump loyalist to the bitter end, and now the bitter end has come. That's right. He was a right-wing uh, activist lawyer who took a job in the Trump White House in the later, it was there in the later stages, the last minutes of Trump's presidency. 
it wasn't even the lies that were a problem. The big lie wasn't the problem. It's when it got to the potential of violence. It looks like that's the point at which Cipollone and, and a number of other people said, hold it, this is, this is going too far. And Cipollone was a very, very powerful witness, the, at least the tapes we've seen and, and the video we saw, because he was clearly uncomfortable. He didn't like being there. He didn't like saying these things. And, and what came through was this real sense of a kind of a tortured soul, like a guy who's, who feels he has to do the right thing, even if he isn't really that excited to do it. And, and I think that you saw that in a lot of what came through today. I agree with you that, that his testimony was highly significant. So too was the testimony from the, the two guys who had been engaged with Oath Keepers and other groups. And so too, I, I really keep coming back to this Twitter uh, some of the tweets that they put up and some of the encrypted conversations that they put up. And I was especially struck, struck by something that Trump's former campaign manager, Brad Pascal, said, where he, you know, he was going back and forth with Pearson, I believe, about what had happened. And um, he said, this is the president of the United States asking for civil war. This is the head of the Trump campaign regretting that he ran Trump's campaign afterwards, saying this this guy wanted a civil war on January 6th. His friend, former campaign aide, comes back and says, well, you know, look, you're not at fault for this and, and stuff like he's trying to like so she's trying to sort of comfort him a little bit. And, and he kind of says a woman died. What's quite remarkable to me now is how much clarity there was among Trump's inner circle at the time that it was playing out. They didn't, some of them wanted to stop it. They didn't know how to stop it. They failed and whatever, but they saw exactly what was playing out. And I have to say, I mean, many of them now will get a little bit of a hero treatment or, you know, respect for stepping up and stuff. Why did these people not come up during the impeachment inquiry? Why didn't they step forward then? Why did Pat Cipollone wait until last week to give this testimony? And if Trump's former campaign manager was saying on January 6th, right, or January 6th, January 7th, saying at that that moment back in 2021, this is the president calling for civil war. Why didn't he step forward and say that at the time? Why didn't he, A, make that statement, but B, also reveal what he knew about the events leading up to it? If these people had stepped up when they should have immediately, it would have made the, the effort to impeach or to convict Donald Trump. Uh, far easier. And let's say a few words about the Republican members of of Congress. Uh, We had that one remarkable video of the Republican woman uh, representative the night before on January 5th saying, these people are going to get here. And when they find out that Pence isn't going to do what they want, it's going to get very dangerous and scary here. She knows what's going to happen the night before. Yeah. Nevertheless, she votes to decertify the vote, the the, yeah. the ballots. And she also, again, doesn't step forward, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, it doesn't. This is an internal session with the caucus. And what is she worried about? Her own safety. Yeah, we we have to have more security because I have called these people into action, and now I think they I may not be able to control them. So what we see here is stunning jaw-dropping information. This committee is doing an amazing job of pulling together information that was previously unavailable and creating a timeline and arc of explanation that absolutely confirms that Donald Trump was the central player in a coup attempt. That's huge, and that's, that's highly significant going forward. But I think we can acknowledge as we say that, that what we're hearing now 
had it been available in January and February of 2021, would have made it possible. I, I genuinely think possible uh, to convict Donald Trump. You know, it's beyond anything we've heard before. And as Jamie Raskin says, uh, this is far worse than anything we've seen from any previous president. Yeah, Jamie Raskin's closing statement, I thought was magnificent. He said, you know, what we've heard today is shocking. It's unprecedented in American history. But the crucial result from this hearing must be the next step, what we do to fortify our democracy against attempts to take elections away from the people. What do we know about what they're talking about on that front? We know that uh, there's a bit of conflict within the, the committee on this issue. There are some members of the committee who really want to focus primarily on accountability for Donald Trump. There is very Trump focused, which is appropriate and understandable. And they want to make sure that they have you know, clarity on what Trump did and recommendations related to that undoubtedly to the Department of Justice. And this, this really is the question of, do you rise to a level of criminal prosecution? So there are members who are focused on that, very appropriate, and that's good. But some of them are resistant to the idea of the broad-based reforms that also must extend from this session. And one of the things that I've always argued uh, is that accountability leads to policy, i.e. that if you achieve a high level of accountability, if you make clear that people did wrong and that there is some sort of uh, penalty for that wrongdoing, that opens up the door for real discussions about how we avoid this ever happening again. It's one of the reasons why I don't think Richard Nixon should have been allowed to fly off to California when he resigned in 1974. He shut down the Watergate uh, inquiry at, before there were the congressional votes. I think they should have, as, as some members of Congress argued, seen it through and then looked for the proper actions coming out of it. In this case, what we're really talking about is how far the committee goes in recommendations. And certainly we need to reform you know, the Electoral Count Act and things of that nature. These are narrow issues. We also have to look, I, I would argue, at the, the core underpinning of why this thing went so far awry, and that's the Electoral College. And I think this committee should recommend the elimination of the Electoral College. I know that won't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen immediately, but that should be clearly linked to what happened on January 6th, that, that if you didn't have an electoral college, the winner of the popular vote by 7 million votes, Joe Biden would have already been you know, secured. This, this whole game that we saw would not have occurred. And they promised us that the next hearing will be about Trump's refusal to call off the attack during the afternoon of January 6th. And we'll get a lot more of Pat Cipollone's testimony. Uh, and then the concluding thing was uh, uh, just a quick note that Trump had apparently tried to influence or intimidate a witness yeah. and that that's being referred for prosecution. Interesting note to end on. That's a hell of a note to end <laughs> And And the question is, uh, which of the witnesses? Obviously, everybody, when you heard about a, a potential witness, everybody's ears immediately, you know, like kind of heard the name Bannon. I wouldn't necessarily suggest here that that's who we're talking about. And it's interesting that this committee had a hearing set for Thursday of this week, which they have, you know, at sort of the last minute said, we're not going ahead with that. We're going to move the move it to next week. That suggests to me that that we had, you know, potentially some interference with something that's that's of the moment or that is of this evolving, you know, storyline. 
And, and so I think there's a lot more to come out in this regard. We have not heard any sworn testimony from Steve Bannon, but some video of him did appear briefly in the hearing on Tuesday, and it was pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, this hearing brought out uh, details about Steve Bannon that were shocking and that it made connections that are so vital to this overall storyline that we end up in a situation where uh, if Bannon were to testify, or if he actually were to testify under oath and answer questions, which I'm quite still quite dubious about whether that's going to happen, but if he were to testify and answer the questions, he would clearly be asked about the conversation on January 5th with Donald Trump. We now know that they spoke for a reasonably lengthy amount of time. And then almost immediately afterwards, Bannon went on his radio show and said, all hell's going to break loose. Tomorrow. That, tomorrow. Tomorrow. And says things that you don't know about, things that haven't been talked about are going to happen. This comes right after he talked to Trump. Obviously, the question is, did Donald Trump say to Steve Bannon, yeah, we've got a whole plan for tomorrow. We're going to, we haven't revealed this yet. It's a secret, but we're going to bring our people from the Stop the Steal rally to the Capitol. We're going to set up a secret stage in front of the Supreme Court. General Flynn and other people are working on that. And we're going to have them there in a position where they can exercise maximum intimidation on Congress at this critical stage. Now, if that is what Donald Trump said to Steve Bannon, leading Steve Bannon to say, all hell is going to break loose, et cetera. Uh, and Bannon were to say that, which again, I'm pretty dubious about him testifying as such. But if he were to say that, I mean, it could be Steve Bannon who, who ultimately brings down Donald Trump. It could be Steve Bannon who brings down Donald Trump. Donald Trump is increasingly obsessed with these hearings. There are reports today that he's been saying to aides, when are these hearings going to end? And stuff like that. He's, this, has, this has gotten under his skin. I think it's gotten him deeply concerned. And, and I think it's fair to say that the Trump team is in a bit of a crisis mode now because these hearings have been so powerful. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks as always. This was great. Pleasure. So many bad things are happening in the world right now. War in Ukraine, mass shootings in the United States, not to mention the threat to democracy posed by the Republican Party. And then there's climate change, the biggest and worst of all the bad things, and the one that seems most hopeless. But there's a new project with a new approach to the climate crisis, founded by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutun Atambua, called Not Too Late. Rebecca Solnit, of course, is the author of more than two dozen books, most recently Orwell's Roses. We talked about it here. She's also a columnist for The Guardian. Rebecca, welcome back. Thank you. And Thelma is a digital storyteller and activist. She's currently the senior communications strategist at The Solutions Project. Before that, she's worked in various roles supporting the global climate movement, as well as other human rights projects around the world. Thelma, welcome. So you say the most harmful lie being spread about climate change today is not that it is fake. Okay, what is the most harmful lie being spread about climate change today, Thelma? 
one of the most hurtful lies that's coming out is that either one, we can't do anything and that we're doomed, or two, we just have to take it slow and steady bit by bit incrementalism. And, and both of those things are really dangerous. And what Rebecca and I are really trying to tackle is people who feel stuck in despair, who can't see another world beyond apocalypse. And so just kind of give up, which I think unfortunately is a lot of people when actually, and this is the not too late title, you know, we do have time. There isn't much time left, but there is time to act. And, you know, this isn't a pass or fail test, as our friend, the scientist Jacqueline Gill says, every step of the way matters, every fight matters. And so much about what this project is about is reminding people that the future is not yet written. You know, we we don't know what's going to happen. And the future is what we created. So reminding people that, that they have power. So are you saying people should not feel frightened and, and depressed about what is happening to the world, Rebecca? You know, we totally understand and respect despair as an emotion. It's really important to not confuse it with an analysis. And you can feel scared and distressed and alarmed and all kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is we are in the decade of decision. What we do in the 20s will determine the fate of the earth for centuries and millennia to come. And there's a lot we can do. We can speed the transition away from fossil fuels, loosen the death grip of the fossil fuel industry on our government and the world's energy supplies build the renewables, protect the soil and the forests, and support all the incredible movements that have already done so much so far and um, have ambitions to do exactly what we need to do. There's a real tendency for people who aren't involved to say nobody's doing anything or think we're starting from scratch. But the climate movement is has grown in strength and inclusiveness and sophistication. There's a lot of absolutely brilliant stuff doing everything from targeting the climate footprint of cryptocurrency to protecting soil to giving land back to indigenous people to manage, you know, so much else. So there is a huge movement. It needs everybody on board. And so in some sense, we're a recruiting project to say, there's lots to do. Please come join us. But don't scientists say that another 1.5 degrees Celsius will mean game over? That that's the point at which catastrophic climate change becomes irreversible? Wasn't that what they said at the Paris Climate Summit a couple of years ago? And aren't we going to hit 1.5 degrees higher in the next few years? That, that is why some people say uh, it's, it's too late. 1.5 was also really championed by a lot of countries on the, on the front lines of climate change. The Climate Vulnerable Forum and especially island nations in the Pacific, they really, really did the work, the hard diplomatic and civil society work to get folks to realize that 1.5 is crucial. So it is important to keep in mind that, yes, horrible, horrible things will happen at 1.5. Horrible things are happening now. The, the toll that climate change is happening on so many lives. You look at the recent heat wave in India. It is so extreme. Billions of lives were impacted. So what's also important to remember with 1.5 is, is, again, it's not, you know, the end point. Even if we hit 1.5, you know, and it looks like most recently scientists say that there's a 
50% chance that we'll hit it soon. But, you know, there's no room to give up. You know, we're not just going to give up and say, okay, that's it. We hit 1.5, game over. Let me just go sit in my bunker. What we're saying is that every step of the way matters, especially for frontline communities whose entire nations are on the line. We, we, need, we do need to keep in mind the urgency, but also, you know, not give up hope and just keep on fighting every day. Just, I just want to add two quick things, one of which is I was in the room of the Climate Vulnerable Forum at Paris in 2015 when they forced the conference to shift from two degrees to 1.5 degrees. And these, are, of course, are scientific measurements. They're not, as our friend Jacqueline Gill, a climate scientist, says, a cliff we're going to fall off. And as Thelma's saying, there's, you know, there's steadily increasing climate chaos. We know there's no magic number at which suddenly everything goes crazy because lots of stuff is already haywire. We're already in trouble. So the important thing to remember is that 1.5 is a great let's not go there line, but it's not a cliff we fall off. Let's talk about the oil and gas companies. Of course, they have immense power. They've known for a long time that the end of the age of fossil fuel is coming, but they're using all the power they have to delay that ending as long as possible and to get us to burn as much carbon as possible in in the meantime. Given this power they have, what makes you think we could succeed at slowing climate change uh, significantly? And there's so many pieces to that picture, one of which is that renewables are now the cheapest form of energy in 91% of the world, I believe. The transition is already well underway. And Texas is now getting more energy from wind than from coal. It's cheaper to transition to renewables than to transition a coal plant to natural gas in the United States. I mean, the, the process is underway. The fossil fuel companies are currently rapaciously profiting and pretending it's something to do with Russia or Biden or something rather than their own greed. But their prices are so volatile, a lot of uh, investors have already withdrawn and they are vulnerable. They can be dismantled and they are not the inevitable superpowers of the world forever. And an important thing to always say about fossil fuel is it is poisonous every step of the way, literally from extraction to processing in refineries, to burning, uh, to what it does to the upper atmosphere and the long-term consequences of that. But it's also politically poison. I and mean, Putin is an, a fossil fuel oligarch, Chevron, Shell, BP, etc., are incredibly destructive forces in our politics. Saudi Arabia is a destructive force. Dismantling these things is not only entirely possible, but it's part of what Thelma and I really like to stress with this. The only solution to climate requires us to build a better world in many ways, and it is underway, and we have so far to go, but we've come so far, and we can dismantle them. One other thing, we're seeing this renewable energy revolution really on full steam. California is reaching, you know, on days, reaching 100% renewable energy. And we're also seeing that by countries, Denmark's hitting 100% renewable energy. You're seeing Costa Rica making huge, huge strides. So it is possible to reach 100%. It's totally possible. The research is there that shows that countries can do it. States can do it. It's already happening. What do you think about individual action? I can recycle, I can compost, maybe I could buy a Prius. 
Well, you'd probably want to buy an electric car at this point in history, not a Prius. But it would actually be better to bicycle or take the bus. But we know you're in L.A. (laughs) So the personal virtue aspect has really been emphasized by the fossil fuel industry propaganda because it's a way both to make people think that they personally are the culprits in all this rather than that, the you know, these huge forces, including the fossil fuel industry governments. And it's a way to tell us that we're consumers and we can just be virtuous consumers. But we're here to tell people that we're not just consumers, we're citizens. And as citizens, we can participate in system change, not just personal virtue. Personal virtue is basically a kind of withdrawal, like I won't fly, I won't eat this, I won't buy that. So personal virtue is kind of a no, but we're about the big yes. Yes, I will engage. Yes, I will work to the transition. Yes, I will be part of the incredible movements out there now. All those things are good, except when they're the only things people think they can do or all they're obliged to do. Almost all of us have the power to participate in some kind of collective action that and system change. And I think for those of us who aren't overwhelmed, you know, we're not prisoners, we're not single mothers, um, you know, we're not homeless, etc. We have that obligation to face the greatest crisis that our species has faced. If we prevail, how much do you think we can reduce our use of uh, fossil fuels, say by 2030 or by 2050? The solutions are, are there. And that's something that scientists have said again and again. We actually have so much of the technology that we need. We know how to do this. We know how to electrify. We know how to get things going. So much of what is missing is the political will, especially in the U.S. There's a lot of other countries moving much faster. And so if we can build the political will, there's so much that can be done. You know, we don't have to wait for the technology. The technology is there. So it's more about building the people power, pushing the politicians and getting things done because it's ready. So let's just go. So I've heard talk about net zero carbon emissions by 2050. This isn't the kids in the Sunrise Movement who who have told us we can do this. It's the International Energy Agency, which is a much more august and cautious organization. I would say that the only reason they're saying that is that the climate movement, including the policy analysts and visionaries, badgered and bulldozed and pressured them to wake up and see the danger and shift their focus from conventional energy to renewables, which I guess is the new conventional energy. But net zero is a tricky phrase because it there's a fantasy that we're going to do lots of magical carbon sequestration which means we can continue burning fossil fuel. And that technology doesn't exist, or it exists in tiny, inadequate ways that can take shave a tiny fraction of a percent off the carbon emissions. Whereas renewables are robust, the price keeps dropping, the design keeps getting better. I'm the engineering breakthroughs around it are so exciting. And so Yeah, we can get to zero by 2050, we can have it by 2030, but we need to do it by actually cutting carbon emissions as well as methane emissions and related emissions, not by the magical thinking people like Bill Gates love because they love big technology and don't like social change. The idea that somehow this magical technology that doesn't exist will come out and save us. We have magical technology, except it's not magical. It's called solar and wind and (laughs) battery storage and efficiency and good design. 
One of the best things about joining activist groups is discovering that we have some wonderful allies out there. Yes, some activists are doctrinaire and domineering, but lots of activists are inspiring and engaging and hopeful, and some are even fun. I, I think you know what I mean. Thelma's one of the most fun people I know, <laughs> and I'm super excited to be partnering with her since you know we met and realized we shared a common vision and that we could do this thing together. And it took us a while to figure out what it is, but we're doing it. But yeah, I think movements are where you meet the best people. And yeah, there are people who drag on at the meeting and stuff, but like the climate movement is global, it's indigenous, it's feminist, it's people of color and racial justice, it's passionate 11 year olds around, you know, and 12 year olds and 13 year olds around the world. And it's visionaries, it's people who truly have a roadmap to a better world. And it's like, it's the best place to hang out. Yeah, and, and something that Rebecca and I love to talk about it, and she touched on this earlier, is that actually through fighting the climate crisis, we can actually create a better world. So people joining the climate fight is, again, people from all walks of life. And through that process, they'll get to know their neighbors, they'll build stronger communities, communities with probably better air quality and more community gardens and you know a healthier place to live. So if you can find a local group near you, we encourage people to get involved. If you can't find a local group, start one or join a national group. But if you're ever feeling down and in despair, the best thing to do is find other people and just take action and get involved. In conclusion, your, your starting point here is we don't know what will happen. And therefore, therefore what? The future is what we make in the present by what we do. It's not like we don't have a clue. There are definitely some parameters with climate change, but there's a huge spectrum from the best case scenario to the worst case scenario. And what we do or don't do really, you know, drives us towards one of those destinations. And of course they continue to evolve. There are surprises along the way. So it's not, I don't want it to sound like we don't know what we're doing, but we do know that the future doesn't yet exist. We often find that despondent people and just the kind of middle-class peasant fatalism of Americans <laughs> suggest that the future already exists and some people are really smart about it. And those are the people telling you it sucks and game over, but they're wrong. Thelma, one last thing, explain to us about your name. Oh, my last name, Lutonatambua. My husband is Fijian. He was actually um, helped found the Pacific Climate Warriors. And one of their anthems is, we're not drowning, we're fighting. So that's something that's always really inspired me. And my hope is coming from the Pacific is, you know, they are really on the front lines. They have so much at risk, but they are not giving up. They're not drowning, they're fighting. Rebecca and Thelma have organized Not Too Late, it's a project to invite newcomers to the climate movement and guide people from despair to possibilities. You can find them online at nottoolateclimate.com. You can follow them on Facebook at nottoolateclimate, on Twitter at nottoolate underscore hope. Thank you, Thelma. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Rebecca. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. 
Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.